So since the fall, <clears throat> the, uh, the council and I have been working together to try and hammer out how it is that we should focus our energies in 2014 for the well-being of the community. If uh, a people resource or an hour resource or if a dollar resource shows up, where would we want to focus those resources to work toward the best well-being and health, spiritual health for our community? And so what we did is we organized our thinking, as you can imagine, according to our four spiritual practices. And what are the things that we can do together to help one another integrate these ancient rhythms, these ancient practices, this ancient lifestyle? How is it that we can integrate this spiritual lifestyle into our lives and help one another do that? And so we did some thinking about some of the things that we could do to make communal practice more accessible. You'll hear about that in the coming year. You'll hear next week about some of the things we can do to make service practice, in particular, uh, how we can get more involved in uh, bettering the lives of people who live in one particular village, Eferie Village in Haiti. Then over the course of the year, you'll hear me talk about several opportunities for learning. And as always, we will be encouraging one another to make meditation part of our daily lives to integrate examine of consciousness into our daily practice, to create seasons of silence and of solitude and quiet reflection. And as we go into 2014, there are a handful of tasks and activities and systems that we want to try and put in place that are going to help one another uh, integrate these practices into our lives. So in a few weeks, we'll have a community meeting and we'll talk them over in detail uh, but you don't have to wait. You can go to the website now, and uh, if you'll go to NorthRaleighCommunityChurch.org, and then you click on the Family tab right there, that will take you to the Family tab. That's what the Family tab looks like. And you'll do a search for our NRCC 2014 work, and then there's a little note that I've written you right there, and then there's a link, and when you link that, you'll see a Word document. It'll come up, and it's like, uh, it's, well, it looks just like this is what it looks like. Um, and you'll see that, and you can kind of read through. These are the things that we want to work on. So after you have read through that, if something on that document stands out and said, oh, I'd like to be involved in that, oh, I'd like to find out uh, who the people are that are going to be working on those kinds of things, then there's a form right underneath that, and you can fill that out, and if you will email that, well, that'll send an email automatically to me, and I will get back to you or connect you to whomever, depending on what it was you were interested in. So just right into the form. You can't see it. It's right down about here. Yeah, I'm interested in this thing that I read in the document. I'd like to be involved in this thing, and that's how that will work. But that's not what we're talking about today. One of those things that you're going to see is underneath making learning practices more accessible, one of the things that I've set as an objective for myself this year is to help our community normalize the self-awareness and self-disclosure paradigm beyond just its off-label use in conflict resolution. That's one of the things that we're going to do. And the first thing you're going to see to help that normalization process happen is today's lesson. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Normalizing self-awareness and self-disclosure beyond just its off-label use in conflict resolution. 
So in a sense, this is a little bit of an advertisement for conflict resolution. <clears throat> Both our Wednesday night modules that we do in June and July every year, plus the first Sunday of every month, those would be good things for you to be aware of, to be familiar with, and to be skilled in. But this isn't really even about that so much, because what we're not talking about today is resolving conflict. That was never the point of this ancient practice that we use for conflict resolution. The point was to pull us into the environment of self-awareness and pull us into a community in which self-disclosure was safe. One of the deepest yearnings of the human heart is to know and be known. You hear me that, say that all the time. To love and to be loved. The ancient practice was designed to help meet that deep interior yearning. So let's begin. <clears throat> so you hear me talk about self-awareness and self-disclosure, um, not only in the context of conflict resolution, but also as the ancient spiritual discipline of confession. That's where it started. Confession wasn't, hey, I've done a bad thing, and now I've got to tell somebody, and I've got to go, if you come from a Catholic tradition, I've got to go into the special box to do the special ritual where I tell the bad thing that I did, or if you come from the Protestant tradition, I've got to have an accountability partner where I go and fess up and tell all that stuff. That was never what it was designed for. It wasn't designed to get the bad out. It was designed to make you aware of why you did the bad in the first place, because there's something that goes on inside of us that precipitates bad words, bad actions, bad thought, bad deeds. And the, the, the issue of self-awareness is the discovery of what it is that goes on inside of us that culminates in those kinds of actions. And then creating the environment of safety in which we can talk it out to come to a deeper understanding. That's what confession is. Well, if you've heard of the Jahari window, <clears throat> you know, it's, if you're listening online and you uh, don't see the visual, there's, it's a grid of four, and it's known by self, unknown by self, uh, and known by others, unknown by others, and that creates four possibilities, that there's the areas of openness and then the areas of facade, the blind spots, and then the yet unknown spots. The key of self-awareness is to move into the known by self quadrants. And the key of self-disclosure is to move into the known by others. Well, what do you know? We end up in living lives of openness, known to ourselves and known to others. So wisdom, the tradition tells us, begins with self-awareness. You've heard me quote Socrates before. Some attribute it to Aristotle. Who knows? I wasn't there. The beginning of wisdom is to know thyself. Wisdom and the pursuit of the good life begins with the pursuit of self-awareness. The beginning of wisdom is to know thyself. There's a proverb that says the same in the wisdom books that says something similar. The rich folks, the successful folks, those who are prospering, folks for whom business is booming, folks for whom life is just coming up roses, these people tend to think themselves fully in the know. These people tend to be pretty sure they've got life figured out. Well, of course they are, because life is really working for them. But, the proverb continues, that's not always so. A smug sense of rightness 
can really get us into trouble. Better to have understanding, even if you're poor when you get it, the proverb says. Better to have understanding, even if you face great failure in your lifetime. Better to have understanding, even if your labor is yielding very little or if you're facing great disaster and pain. Better to have understanding or to gain experience and understanding. That's better than rich, success, prospering. We've been watching life for centuries now, the proverb says, and this is what we've learned. People with understanding, people with self-awareness, these are the people who over the long haul do better every time. The beginning of wisdom is self-awareness. But there's the other element in play, and that is the self-disclosure one. Because the hidden away life, it turns out, loses something precious. The life that is lived openly and the life that is lived freely and the life that is lived disclosingly becomes the enhanced life, the good life, the authentic life, the non-disguised, non-covered-up life, the free-from-the-smoke-and-mirrors life. This life, the wisdom tradition tells us, this life works Self-awareness and self-disclosure form the beginning of wisdom. I was speaking with my son over the holidays about a technique that we use at the church. You're aware of it. It's, it's what we do when we do the conflict resolution. And when I was telling him, <clears throat> Michael's a um, really affable personality, so he doesn't get into a lot of conflicts. And so consequently, uh, when it happens, it's kind of a rarity, And so I was saying, well, this thing, it's really not just about resolving conflicts. This thing is much, much more important than that. And I started telling him about this. And I chose this number arbitrarily. I said, 95% of all the things, it might be 90, it might be 80, it's some large percentage of all the interactions that we have while we live in this world that we do function in the realm of a set of shared assumptions. We are all part of a culture, and we all know which side of the road to drive on. And we all know what a red light means, and we all know what a yellow uh, sign means, and we all know that it's best not to uh, express your frustration by going up to a co-worker and slapping them. We all know that you take care of your bathroom business in the bathroom. We all know the kinds of language and the kinds of vocabulary that are used. We've got this shared set of understanding, and we all function in this, and we do it together. So when it's time to eat, we have a shared set of assumptions about where you go to buy food. We have a shared set of assumptions about how much a gallon of milk should cost. We have a shared set of assumptions about how to cook food, and we go to work. And we all share the assumption that this is your job description, and this is my job description, and I relate to you on the basis of what you're required to do by yours and what I'm required to do by mine. And then we watch sports, and we root for our favorite teams, and we have a shared assumption about the rules that are on the field, and the referee does this and doesn't do that. And we're conservatives or we're liberals, and we have a shared set of assumptions on the basis of that, whether we think the world should be run this way or whether we should run the world that way. And we know who the idiots are, and we know who the good people are, and we've got it all figured out, and we've do this and we live most of our lives in the basis of that 95% world where everybody thinks, yeah, this is the way it should be going. And because we function so much in that 95% world with these shared beliefs and shared norms and we're all being on the same page, we have developed a way of interacting in that world, in that 95% world that really works smoothly. 
we get along. We function. We work in the 95% world. But there is something that doesn't happen in the 95% world that's really important. And that is we do not know and we are not known. We do not love and we are not loved. That doesn't happen in the world of shared assumptions. The shared assumption world is the, is the world of commerce. It's the world of contract and buying and selling and working and doing. It's the world in which everybody knows exactly what's going to happen next. It's the world in which we live almost by rote. It's the world in which we just fulfill the function that is expected of us, and we do so much of that that we know how to do it so well, we do it by instinct. And with this finely honed set of practices and instincts and norms for navigating the 95% of the world, it leaves precious little time to hammer out the skill set that is required of the 5% world, where knowing and being known happens, where loving and being loved happens. And we move into relationships in which knowing and loving should be happening, and we take these same set of instincts and we apply them even there. And we get used to this non-threatening, non-demanding, non-dangerous way of being, and we live in the world of our thoughts, and we exchange ideas, and we exchange patterns of thinking, and that suffices for life. And what we miss is this deep yearning that the five represents. And the reason is because there are a set of skills required of the 5%, a set of skills required if we would know and be known, love and be loved, that are deeply rooted in the ancient wisdom of self-awareness and self-disclosure. And as a people, those things are hard. As a culture, those things have kind of taken back seat We're a commercial enterprise culture. We do stuff. We produce stuff. We make stuff happen. And lots and lots and lots and lots of our life's bandwidth gets used up in that. And so consequently, there's a great deal of knowing and being known that does not happen. Loving and being loved that does not happen. And a big reason for that is we've lost the skill set around self-awareness and self-disclosure. And so, I continued on my little chat with my son, we have this practice that is quite ancient that moves beyond the thoughts that I think. It moves beyond the 95% world. It moves beyond then. And usually it happens when there's a precipitating event. Usually there is something that happens that produces a negative emotion, and that's it. When you have conflict, or when you have fear, or when you have anxiety, or when you have anger, or when you think the coworker is just a jerk, or when you think, oh my God, we're going to be living in a cardboard box under a bridge, or when you're up at night worrying that the kids are going to do this, or they're not going to do that, or when that's happening, that's the precipitating event. When you have the negative emotional response, that's the universe's invitation That's the spiritual tradition's invitation. It says, come now on the journey of self-awareness and (laughs) self-disclosure. Let us learn together the ways of knowing and being known. So I was speaking with a member of the community this week. This person, like so many of us, is on a vigorous, robust growth journey. 
And part of that is that he or she, I'm not going to say which, but for shorthand, I'm just going to use he as a shorthand. Part of that is that he recognizes that alcohol has become a problem. And so he started going to 12-step meetings, which is a great thing to do when you realize you're going to have substance issues. 12 steps is the best way to do it. We uh, <clears throat> have lots of 12-step folks in the room, and we have lots of folks who understand that. But this person was saying, you know, I have a little bit of trouble with the 12-step people. They're just a little religious sounding, he said. <laughs> they think they know what God thinks. They think they know what God wants, like they could possibly know. And they want me to turn my life over to God as I understand God. But in fact, what they're saying is they want me to turn my life over to God as they understand God. And that really bothers me. And it bothers me enough and it upsets me enough that I'm writing you this email, Doug. And so we were having a meeting later in the week. Uh, we were going to talk about some of our 2014 work. And so after we got the work done, we just sat and we chatted for a little while. And I began to ask questions, as I am prone to do. Self-awareness questions. Well, what's the story you're telling yourself about the 12-steppers and their hyper-religious ways? And they were unearthing the, the story. What's going on inside of you? And it's not the, they're just a bunch of religious prude story. What's the deeper story? What's the realer story? And he was pretty prepared He'd been doing a lot of self-awareness work already. And so he said this. You know, I kind of had a dominating father, and he was particularly a moralizing father. And nothing that I could ever do was enough. And I was never smart enough or good enough or virtuous enough. And I hated that. I really hated that. Well, you can understand that. I would have too. And so when I'm around these 12-steppers, yeah, I know that they want me to turn my life over to God as I understand God. But what I hear is the tapes from my father. What I hear is this story that's just going off in my head that they think they're better than me. That they think they have a line on God. And when I hear God, I think of this long pokey finger that just comes down and thumps me on the chest and says, you are morally deficient. And my instinct-driven story kicks in almost any time somebody uses the word God, because God is almost synonymous with disapproval. So I've had this lifelong battle to get past the you've-been-tried-and-found-wanting belief that I picked up when I was a young person, and I've worked hard. I've gone to counseling. I've bettered myself. I've worked hard to achieve the things my dad said I would never achieve. I've proven that I'm smart. I've proven that I'm capable. I've proven that I'm virtuous and that I'm kind and that I'm good. And I'll be damned if I'm going to sit under that same toxic message now or ever again. And so we chatted. We chatted about the 12 steps, some of the things, the wording that's in the steps. And I said, well, let's tell another story about what those words could potentially mean. And note, here's what they don't say. They don't say you've been tried and found wanting. They don't say that God disapproves of you. They do say that you get to emerge and develop into this understanding of God. And together we framed a very different story of what the 12 steps could be saying and what the 12 steppers who were driving this guy nuts could also be saying that was also true. And after we did that, he said, but that's not the story that I tend to tell myself. I tend to fight all comers who even look like they might suck me back into that toxic soup that I have worked so hard 
to escape. Yep, I said, that's the way this thing goes. And when that story kicks in, and that story that you tell yourself starts getting brought into play, then there will be feelings. And there will be anger feelings. And there will be critical feelings. And there will be fending off the idiots feelings. That's the way this thing works. The story that we tell ourselves, usually a story we don't even know we're telling ourselves, produces feelings. And they're logical feelings. Given the story, they're very logical. They follow. They're not usually non sequiturs. There is the story, and then there are the feelings, and it just makes all kinds of sense. But they become bewildering feelings when we don't know the story. And that's the problem. Most of the time, we don't know the story that we are telling ourselves. That's the way this self-awareness thing works. We wake up with an afflictive emotion. We wake up with a negative reaction. And now the precipitating event is an invitation to ask ourselves, what story am I telling myself that is producing this negative emotion? Which is why if you hang around here long enough, you will hear something like a negative emotion. Woohoo! <laughs> a painful interior reaction. Fantastic. Afflictive emotions are our friends. Negative emotions are our friends. They tell us that something is going on, and they invite us into this journey of self-awareness. So, I hate that 12-step guy and his moralizing religious tone. What is the story that I'm telling myself? What are the feelings that I'm having? And what is the primal hurt down inside of me that this episode is touching? What's my story? What are my feelings? And what deep hurt am I carrying? So, I told my friend as we were speaking, it appears there's a small part of you that still believes your father. The really deep hurt is in there whispering this quiet little voice, you are inadequate. Despite all your hard work, despite all your successes, despite all of that, you are morally bankrupt. You are deficient in honor. You are deficient in goodness. And there's that little interior voice inside just speaking that up, speaking that up. All the stuff you picked up from your father. If it didn't, the moralizing 12-stepper wouldn't even bother you. It would just be part of the background noise. It would be just part of stuff that goes on in life. I mean, all kinds of stuff comes at you, and you have this great filter, and most of the time you filter out most of it. You don't pay any attention to it. It would be in that category if some part of you inside didn't still believe your father. But you did have an emotional reaction. And that emotional reaction tells you, aha, something's going on. The conflict inside of yourself is between this emerging you and this primally wounded you. Those two yous are fighting. And this poor 12-stepper just walked in the middle of your fight and just kind of poked at a fight you were already having. And this guy spoke for God, which is unwise to be sure, because nobody can speak for God. But when he did, what he did wasn't just speak for God. He poked your primal wound. And so, ouch! becomes the reaction, quickly followed by, what a jackass. <laughs> but again, negative emotions are our friends. They invite us to the work of self-awareness. Ah, your co-worker is angering you. Great. 
What did your coworker trigger? Because if you weren't triggered, this would be a simple problem, and simple problems get solved every day in the 95% world. You would just go up to Jane and say, Jane, when you do X, I have to do Y. Could you please stop doing X? And everything would just go swimmingly. But when that doesn't happen, when you have a triggered response, that means the 5% world has been poked, which is great. An invitation to self-awareness. An invitation to wisdom. Instead of that, when the 5% gets poked, instead of it just going along swimmingly, when it hits the fan, we don't even know what happened. We are invited into figuring out what happened. You can ask, what is the story that I'm telling myself? These feelings that usually get masked as anger or frustration, what are those feelings based on the story that I'm telling myself? What is the primal hurt inside of me, self-awareness. So you can see why we would use this ancient practice of self-awareness in conflict resolution, because if anything's going to create an afflictive emotion, if anything's going to make you have a negative response, it's going to be a conflict with someone that you care for. People fight all the time. But most of the time, they fight without knowing anything of what's going on in the 5% world. They only know what's going on up here. Denise and I did that for years and years and years. We thought we were fighting about food. We thought we were fighting about sex. We thought we were fighting about money. We thought we were fighting about the things that everybody always fights about, and we were making a great case. I was making a great case. She was making I was making a better case. She was making... (laughs) And we were going back and forth, and we were getting nowhere. (laughs) The reason we were getting nowhere is because we had no idea what we were fighting about. I had no idea what the story, I did not know what food represented. I did not know what sex represented. I did not know what these things represented. I didn't understand what the story was that I was telling myself and what I was fighting for. And likewise, the same was true for her. So we never got this stuff done because we didn't know. So that's why we use this kind of, this ancient practice for conflict resolution. But it isn't really about conflict resolution. It's about self-awareness being the beginning of wisdom. So let me come back to the Jahari window for just a moment and talk about that known by others part, this part, the known by others part. The ancient wisdom doesn't just invite you you to self-awareness. It also invites you to a context in which self-disclosure is safe. It invites you to live in the open, not hidden side of life. Now, in the wrong environment, self-disclosure can be dangerous because people will use your vulnerabilities against you once they know them. That's true. But that only happens when community is sick. That doesn't happen in healthy community. And as you've heard me say so many times in our lifetime, the mission before our generation is to re-stitch the torn fabric of community is to heal the community sickness. But when community is not sick, and we are working really hard at NRCC to create a community that is not sick, that is healthy. We're working hard to create trust and trustworthiness. It ought to be that way in church, if anywhere. When community is healthy, self-awareness and self-disclosure act as reinforcing feedback loops. These questions, what is the story I'm telling myself? What are the feelings that are arising in response to the story that I'm telling myself? And what primal hurt, what deep issue, what thing inside of me has this episode poked? These questions were designed to be used in a very specific context. They were designed to be used in the context of a spiritual friendship. 
the context where trusted and trustworthy friends gather together to talk about the questions. That's what's happening in the growth edge groups that started. That's when, when I say we're working on making communal practices more accessible in the coming year. That's what we're going to work toward is helping people find their way into that ancient pattern of spiritual friendship where we don't just talk about the stuff, we talk about the stuff. We talk about what's going on inside of ourselves. And when we do that in this trusted and trustworthy environment, self-awareness and, dis- and self-disclosure begin to reinforce one another in this way. I, the more I disclose to you, the more I know about myself. The more that I watch myself, knowing I'm going to be telling you about it, the more I frame it clearly for you and thus frame it more clearly for myself. Self-disclosure acts as a reinforcing loop for self-awareness. Furthermore, the more I learn about myself, the more you learn about yourself. Because as you're watching your journey and I'm telling you about mine, you make the connections and you see the things that are happening and that are true for your life as well. And it serves again to reinforce. And in that same context, the more that we learn about ourselves, the more we are able to disclose about ourselves. And we find that these two act in a reinforcing manner. But people who secret their self-awareness away, usually driven by shame or usually hurt by some vulnerability in the past that did not go well, people who secret away their self-awareness don't dig as deeply into that self-awareness as compared with those who have a safe place to talk things out. Consequently, they don't get to experience as much of the fullness that the spiritual life has to offer. They don't get to experience as much of the knowing and being known. They don't get to experience as much of the loving and being loved. They don't get to experience as much of the spiritual heritage that is ours to have. So, to recap, negative emotions are our friends. They indicate that there's a story in play. They invite us to come and become aware of what the story is that we tell ourselves. They point us to ferret out the feelings that are being precipitated by the story. And once we see those feelings, we begin to get a vague image of what might be that primal hurt that's going on inside of us, that deep wound that has been poked, that thing that we carry around. And when we begin to look at our story and look at our feelings and look at these primal wounds inside of us, the very act of looking, the very act of standing outside of that experience is profoundly spiritual. And it works like this. Most of the time, we are immersed in our thoughts, and we are immersed in our feelings, and we are identified with our thoughts and identified with our feelings. But the time comes when we do the work of self-awareness, and we stand out here and we say, look at me feeling angry. Look at me telling myself that story. Look at me having those feelings on the basis of that story. And look at me very clearly reacting to that deep primal wound. Look at me. Now there's two me's. There's the me that's doing that, and there's the me that's standing over here watching me do that which is the first and the most difficult step in spiritual growth. Because now I am no longer identified with that me. I am now an observer of that me. And so the work of self-awareness points us to the deeper reality that our spiritual tradition has used metaphor to talk about. To say, if you want to know what you are, it's not your thoughts It's not your actions. It's not your emotions. You hear me say all the time, you are not your sin. 
You sin, sure you do, we all do, but that is not you. You are, and the best we can come up with is you are pneuma. You are the breath of God that is breathed into you. Well, what makes you you is the very breath that the very beginning of our book says. You, the breath of God was breathed into you, and that makes you you. And when the breath of God goes away, you stop being you. You stop being alive when the breath of God goes away. So the closest you we have to talking about it is this vague metaphorical language that says you are of and in and by the divine life. That is you. And so that part of you, you can't define any more than you can define God, but you can experience it. And the way that you experience it is in the seeing you, the seeing you that can observe the wacky you, the wounded you, the acting and reacting you. And so by coming and doing this self-awareness journey, by reinforcing it, by being part of a safe community where you can have self-disclosure, you begin this journey of wisdom, wisdom rooted in the divine life that defines you. This is what I want to normalize in our community this year. So I'm going to do something uh, twice this year, maybe, maybe once. We'll see how the calendar goes. But I'm going to do two things, maybe do them once, maybe do them twice. Last year I sent you an email and I said, tell me your growth edge. Where are you growing? And the reason I did that is because I get to read them, and that's fun. That's not the point. The point is you get to think about it, and you get to set aside some time and think through where am I growing, and you get to frame it for someone to read, which means you have to clarify it in your mind, which means you have to cement your understanding. And so you write out those bullet points and you send it to me and you reinforce that very growth edge. The very act of naming it and defining it reinforces it. And I'll do that again this year, maybe twice. But in addition, I'm going to also ask you this. How are you doing with your afflictive emotions? Are negative emotions your friends? In other words, when you have a negative emotion, are you going up and asking yourself, what is the story that I tell myself? What are the feelings that I'm having in response to the story that I'm telling myself? And what is this deep thing, this primal thing inside that gets poked when these things happen? And I'll ask you, how are you doing with that? And I want you to be thinking, knowing that that email is going to come, start thinking now, how am I doing with it? How am I doing when I have a negative reaction toward my loved one or toward my coworker or toward my child or toward someone? Those will be the questions. We can call them the netherworld questions. What's going on down in the dark side inside of me? What's the story I'm telling myself? What feelings is that story eliciting? And what primal hurts does the episode touch? Spirit of God, may we be a self-aware bunch. And may we be a trusting and trustworthy bunch as well. A safe place for this self-disclosing to happen. And may we, as members of the community, each find our way into a network of spiritual friendships that are safe for talking about our souls. Be that so, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.